Okay, the ordinance of covenanting, we're up to week 41. This is part four of the Psalm League and Covenant. Fourth term of communion, the public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. The National Covenant, the Solemn League, are an exemplification of this divine institution that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. <coughs> so we talked about various aspects of <coughs> uh, this proposition regarding covenanting, and we're now up to the third article, <coughs> the Psalm League and Covenant. Uh, we, we've talked about the preface and, and the first two articles. We're up to the third article. And this article has a lot to do with uh, our relation to the civil magistrate <coughs> has a lot of uh, bearing on the issue of, of the doctrine of civil magistracy and what we should think and what we should understand uh, a lot of the positions that have been taken by the church uh, the, the Church of Scotland and the, the uh, really the Reformed Presbyterians uh, since the Revolution, a lot of these things are in fact attempts to out to, to work out the principles <coughs> that we find in the Psalm Lincoln Covenant <coughs> with respect to the civil magistrate and applying the doctrines that we have in our confession of faith in terms of this covenant. So we need to think about the Psalm League and Covenant as we're going through it as a declaration, uh, among other things, beside being a covenant, it's a declaration of intentionality uh, with respect to all of the things that they, they um, composed at the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s. You know, why... Do we have a confession of faith? Why our catechisms? Why the, the Directory of Public Worship? Why the form of presbyterial government? Why did they do all this? Why did they lay it all out? Well, we've already seen and we'll see more of this. They're interested in uniformity. Uh, uniformity between England, Scotland, Ireland, and every nation... Uh, ultimately, that has been taken into the Anglosphere, the English-speaking people. Right? The, the fact remains that in 1640, uh, 41, 42, 43, America was part of Britain. And um, even after the American Revolution, by the way, Canada was called British North America. And uh, that's because, of course, there hadn't been a political separation. That doesn't happen in Canada until 1867 with the Confederation uh, that was framed on Prince Edward Island by a, a guy named MacDonald. Um, and <clears throat> he, too, like so many of the people, were... Uh, he, he, was, he was a Scot... Um, the Anglosphere, generally speaking, is conceived of and and contemplated in the taking of this covenant, which is why <coughs> the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America 
uh, early on, even though they rewrote some of the terms of communion, uh, I think illegitimately, uh, they still understood that they were bound by the the moral principles of these covenants wherever they went. Yeah, wherever you can't escape, right? You, you might get married in one country, but you don't you don't cease being married by moving to another country. Right? That marriage covenant uh, is transferable. And so the fact that America is contemplated in this, even though there's a separation that goes on, doesn't mean that all of these things aren't still binding. <clears throat> now that's a different proposition. We'll eventually get to talk about more. But when our term of communion talks about a continued obligation upon the moral person. We need to understand that the moral person may have separated politically, but a separation, a political separation, uh, just like a divorce, it does not absolve the, the people who are divorced from moral obligations that they've undertaken in the course of when they were married. Right? You, you don't all of a sudden no longer have responsibility for the children of that marriage, for example, or for debts which were incurred in that marriage. Right? And, and this covenant in that sense is a debt. So we'll, we'll talk about that more, as I say, later. We're, we're really going to focus on the third article tonight. But we need to understand that these principles... Because you might be sitting there as we're going through saying, well, this is talking about, you know, the British monarch and what does that have to do with us? Why can't we just move on? Um, <coughs> we'll address that directly when we get to the Arkansas renovation. Because at Arkansas in 1712, Macmillan and, and the United Society showed us exactly how to extract moral principles put them on the forefront uh, and we'll, we'll see that with respect to the Solemn League as well as the National Covenant. So there are moral principles here and in the same way that we say look uh, God gave a, a, a set of, of political laws to Israel as a typical nation. Those laws, um, as, a tip, as to a typical nation, they don't any longer apply. They've expired. But as a political nation, to the extent that these are <coughs> principles of general equity that would pertain to a political nation wherever that political nation would be, whether it's the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel, or the United States, those are moral principles which are abiding. So keep that in mind as we talk about this. I'm going to read the third article and then we'll start to consider a number of the points here. Right, the third article. We shall, with the same sincerity, reality, and constancy in our several vocations, endeavor with our estates and lives mutually to preserve the rights and privileges of the parliaments and the liberties of the kingdoms. 
and to preserve and defend the King's Majesty's person and authority in the preservation and defense of the true religion and liberties of the kingdoms, that the world may bear witness with our consciences of our loyalty, and that we have no other thoughts or intentions to diminish His Majesty's just power and greatness. <coughs> so, the fact that they've expressed these principles in the concrete is, should be no more troublesome than the fact that, for example, the <coughs> Apostle Paul um, addresses certain moral principles in the concrete. He deals with people in the church in his day. And we have to, uh, we have to say, well, that doesn't just pertain <coughs> to um, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Right? It, it, those principles may well, the principle regarding Sinteke, uh, that may have bearing on us today. Right? We can uh, derive certain things, perhaps, and instruction from their names, but beyond that, the things that the apostles in, uh, in joining upon them tend to be of abiding moral uh, validity. Or they are theological principles which transcend you know, any boundaries of time or space. Right? Truth is one. And what's true, or what was true then, morally, religiously, is true morally and religiously today. Uh, except the, the, you know, for the fact that uh, the Jews, for example, had a body of, of doctrines regarding things which were typical and shadowy. <coughs> those, were, uh, those were sort of outlines of what was to come. And they, they're no longer binding on us. But what they were pointing to is... So, while we may not uh, necessarily find ourselves politically bound to a quote-unquote parliament uh, or to a king, we can recognize in the parliament a principle of, of government, uh, that there is a right, uh, the people have a, a right to have a voice in the government, and in the, the king, uh, we can recognize the, um, the lawful supreme magistrate. Again, we're going to talk about that more when we get to the Arkansas renovation. But <clears throat> these things are there. So we want to address <coughs> questions <coughs> of underlying morality, questions that, that have bearing not only uh, to these covenanters in 1643, but to those who are descended from them and are bound by these same covenants even to the present day. Question one then. So should we undertake mutually to preserve and defend with our states and lives the course of reformation in the civil government? And the answer is yes. We begin looking at Psalm 2, 10 to 12. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> be wise there now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, 
and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. We see in Psalm 2 the command which is given to every king, every supreme magistrate in the world, uh, to submit to the mediatorial reign of Christ. And it's given at a time when only Israel uh, was in fact uh, in, in a state of submission to the rule and reign of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on earth. But the command is to all nations. And so what we see right away in this article <clears throat> is that these people have taken this idea very seriously. Uh, they, they believe that the principles of the true religion aren't something that you just talk about once a week on Lord's Day and have no real bearing on the civil society. That they have a very different view. Um, let me point out something before we move any further into the answer here, but they also mention that they are going to undertake the preservation and defense of reformation of civil government in accordance with their several vocations. Now, that's a, that's a very important proposition, <coughs> right? If you're the cobbler and you're, you're repairing shoes, you probably are going to have a much smaller part to play in that preservation and defense. Right? It'll be more uh, community-oriented. If, on the other hand, you are the mayor of a town, you're probably going to have a little bit more uh, to, that you are called to do. If you're a member of, a, of the House of Parliament, or in the case of the United States, you know, a member of Congress, or something like that, th there's a heightened responsibility. It's far beyond. And when you're at the top of the heap, <clears throat> you know, you're the prime minister, you're the king, you're the, the president, uh, you're the premier, whatever uh, they, they call you. Um, as Harry Truman once said, the buck stops there, right? You're going to bear supreme responsibility for whether or not this has been carried out at the highest levels and in accordance with the highest principles of the civil government within the civil society. All right. So depending on who you are, what you are, your vocation, if you're a school teacher, uh, this has definite ramifications on you know what you're going to teach, how you're going to teach, and what uh, what you view as the end goal. In just going back <coughs> um, not even a hundred years ago in, in our society with all of the flaws the idea behind education was to a large extent uh, bound up with the idea of 
teaching people to be good citizenships. They used to have, I don't know if they even do this anymore, they used to have courses, uh, they called it civics, where they taught you how things worked and why they were the way they were. You know, and you, you, you weren't sitting there scratching your head saying, you know, why do we have an electoral college? Why don't we just allow presidents to be elected by popular vote? You talked about those things. You learned about those things. Uh, and to the extent that it went, it was good. It should have gone further. But we're going in the other direction now in a lot of these uh, cases. The vocation and the carrying out of this, people are going the other direction. The people who are swearing this covenant want to push in a different direction than we're going, right? They're looking at forming the character of the nation, um, the civil character of the nation in terms of the true religion. But they don't have this idea that cropped up in the United States that religion was a voluntary enterprise or that the church was a voluntary association. Um, that's that's a result of the influence of, of the American Baptist culture. <coughs> uh, nations must render homage to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Psalm 72, 8 through 11. Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yeah, so <clears throat> it's commanded. It's a duty. It's not only commanded, it's prophesied that there will be a time coming when all nations will render homage. They'll do service to Christ as king of the nations governor of the nations, right? The king of kings. In fact, the psalmist threatens the nations that will not with destruction. It's Psalm 9, 17 and 76, 12. Psalm 9, verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Psalm 76, <coughs> verse 12. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. So, again, uh, the threat, the divine threat is that the nation and kingdom that will not serve God in Christ will be cut off. And we've seen down through the ages uh, that this has been the case. Uh, we, we have, I think, a, a different situation now in the Anglosphere, uh, in large part because of the Solomon League and Covenant. But, um, that again, that's something that we'll, we'll have reason to talk about when we talk a little bit more about descending obligation. <coughs> the fact that the Bible <coughs> is enjoining this kind of, of um, obedience obeisance to Christ that tells us that what these covenanters are doing in 1643 is good laudable, commendable 
and in keeping with what the true religion is teaching. Right, so they're trying to implement that which is found written. <clears throat> they have a sense that they ought to be doing more. Right, they're, there's, they're, not <clears throat> they're not under this um, illusion. You know, the Roman church and the Anabaptists teach, well, the Anabaptists teach that Christians should have nothing to do with the civil magistrate. Uh, the the Romanists teach that Christians should govern over the the civil societies. Right? That's why in Revelation, <clears throat> the harlot, which is Rome, <clears throat> is said to ride on the back of the beast. Right? That that that, um, that civil government. There, uh, that's what Romanism is. It's riding roughshod over an unconverted state. And this idea is actually quite popular now in the so-called religious right in this country. We want to have people, Christians in government, but we don't want the government to be Christian. And that's contrary to what the Bible says, contrary to what the Reformed faith has said. The Reformed faith doesn't want Christians ruling over governments. It wants governments Christianized. Like nations to become Christian. Right? When you, the Roman Church's view is we're just going to run roughshod over people, uh, whether they will or not. <clears throat> That's the spirit of Antichrist. Right? We want people to be converted. We want the nations to be subordin uh, in subordination and submission to the rule and reign of Christ. Uh, we want them to be converted. We don't want we don't want uh, this idea that the civil government is somehow neutral, a neutral umpire in the realm of religion is a false notion. It's been enshrined in a lot of Supreme Court decisions. There's one, uh, there's a test I think it goes back in the 50s, the Lemon Test about how the Supreme Court ruled how to determine whether or not something represented an establishment of religion or just a public expression of um, something that the majority uh, liked and it had to do it, it, it was a case uh, the defendant I think was uh, named Le Lemon and th there's a three pronged test that they came up with uh, so there's a long history in this country of trying to avoid doing exactly what the Covenanters are doing here they're trying to to shirk their duty, but here uh, the Psalm League is not trying to shirk that duty. So thus it is that we find the good and godly kings commended for following a course of civil reformation according to the law of God. In Second Chronicles thirty five twenty six. Second Chronicles thirty five verse twenty six. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness according to that which was written in the law of the Lord. And those who failed in this matter are condemned. Second Chronicles twelve one. Second Chronicles twelve one. And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. 
In fact, when we read through the books of Kings, the Kings, uh, we are being instructed again and again, <coughs> good kings, good kings rule in subordination to Christ. <coughs> they are um, they are keen to uphold a national establishment of the true religion. Uh, they want to rule according to the law of God. We wouldn't be struggling now in this country with trying to determine whether or not we should be giving rights to, say, sodomites. Right? According to the law of God, uh, once the sodomites started pushing their agenda openly, uh, we would have been the, the magistrate would have been well within his right, according to the law of God, to take them out and burn them. And I guarantee you, burn a couple of them, and uh, this this perversion would have stopped and all of the other filth that's gone along with it would have stopped right but what what inevitably happens is in order to maintain what they believe is just a matter of religious tolerance and openness leads to a more and more permissive view of morality and it undermines society so we're now at a point where we've got boys who don't know whether they're boys and girls who don't know which bathroom to use. Right? We have people who are confused at, at a very fundamental level about who and what they are and what they're doing here. You know, they, don't, they don't really see the purpose. They don't see the need for anything. They're confused because there is no objective standard of morality. Because in order to have an objective standard of morality... There has to be a religious commitment on the, the part of the society. What the United States did in disestablishing religion federally, which is how it started, uh, and then enforcing it at a state level later, what they did by doing that, is, frankly, was unprecedented in the history of the world. Right? You couldn't speak against the gods of the Greeks or the Romans or the Persians without incurring some kind of, of uh, problem. And, and they did have a toleration of other views, but you couldn't just come up and, and attack their, their gods because they understood that you were attacking their society. <coughs> so this has been a problem, and we're still suffering with this until people start to think right about this problem, it's never going to be solved. You, know, you can't just reach into the air and pull morality out of nowhere. You know, and if, if somebody asks you, you know, where did you get your morals, and you say, I got it from my parents, and that's all you can say about it, uh, you, I, I can already tell you that's not the basis for a very stable society. Right? Because uh, different parents are going to have different standards of morality when there is no fixed standard. Now, what one of the things that kept this country in line for a long time is you had, generally speaking, people, English-speaking people, coming to this country who were Protestant, and they shared an ethos. But during the 19th century, you started letting in all the papists, started with the potato famine in Ireland, and that it continued in the 1880s and 90s uh, with the, the 
the wave to bring over wave after wave of people from the Mediterranean area, uh, Papists, almost all of them. <coughs> there was a little bit of backlash, and it brought a restriction in um, in the 20s, I believe it was. There was restriction in the mid-20s on immigration, and then, of course, in 1965, uh, there was a total revision, and um, Protestants are at pro European Protestants are at the bottom of the list of people that we're looking for to come to this country now, uh, and and. I say this, if there was a national church and there, there were parishes and there, there was a, a concern for the true religion, there, there would be possibilities of taking a lot of these people and forming them. The public school system was really designed, in a sense, to do that. They thought that the public schools, which they set up after the American Civil War, <coughs> they thought that they were going to manage to turn... Uh, a lot of these papist kids into Protestants. Uh, what happened instead was the papists said no and they set up all these parochial schools to evade having to hear the Bible read and and ha especially in English. You don't want them to have the Bible in their own language. God forbid some papists should actually find out what the Bible says. Um, so they, they, uh, f they founded their own schools and then they, they went back into the public schools as teachers, and they've been undermining Protestantism in the public schools ever since. So, uh, th again, there's a problem because you can't have a public education system without a national church. You have to have a church <coughs> professing the true religion overseeing this or the, the education will be cut loose from any kind of absolute moral standard or religious standard. Right? And it, it's, you cut loose a ship uh, it, from a harbor and let it just go in the water, it's going to drift and it'll eventually run aground. That's what we've done with the public school system in this country. <clears throat> in Scotland, when John Knox <coughs> established public schools uh, and the Protestants were the first ones to establish public schools. Uh, the schools were designed to serve the interests of the church. They wanted you to be able to read because they want you to be able to read the Bible. Uh, instead, because we divorced it from a true, uh, the true church, <coughs> what happened is public schools were very quickly co-opted. The religious end was, was undermined by Romanists. And with regard to the rest of the education, it was, it was basically crafted to serve the interest of industry rather than uh, Christianity. <clears throat> it's nothing against industry, but industry, you know, corporations without morals, uh, as we're seeing more and more, are, are a big problem in a society. Right, so if you if you want to complain about the fact that we have great corporations that are amoral, immoral, <clears throat> uh, that this comes right out of divorcing public education from 
a national establishment and rejecting true religion at the top of, of the ordering of civil society. Anyway, the Covenanters here in 1643 are concerned. They don't want to do this. <coughs> so, question two. Is it proper to preserve and defend the rights and privileges of lawful governing bodies? The answer is yes. We will get Psalm 68.27. Psalm 68, verse 27. <clears throat> there is little Benjamin with their ruler, the princes of Judah and their council, the princes of Zebulon and the princes of Naphtali. Yeah, we are to be careful that we seek to preserve and defend the rights and privileges of all lawful governors. Titus 3, 1 and 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Titus 3, verse 1, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to, to every good work. 1 <coughs> Peter 2, verses 13 through 17, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well, for so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So it is part of Christian duty uh, to, to seek to be good citizens, right? to be <clears throat> um, proper members of a civil society as well. And that includes defending the rights and privileges of lawful governors. Now, I'm going to come back to that uh, in, a, in a couple of questions, what, what exactly we have in view here. But it is... It is proper, and proper, again, <clears throat> proper to different people in different ways, and according to your vocation. And so, fathers are going to have one responsibility, mothers another, children another. Right? Ministers are going to have one obligation, and senators or, or uh, members of parliament or congressional uh members another. This is all going to go into uh, the the, um, the big hopper of civil concern and it will it will get um, spun out. You have to you have to look at, at um, uh, different people right in different Jobs uh, or different different avenues of industry. Right, some some people are doing something at a very low menial level. Some people are at the highest ends of the corridors of, of industrial power or commercial power. Now again, you have an obligation according to your position in society you have an obligation and you have you, you you're not in it alone this idea uh, <clears throat> this idea of, of what I would call radical individualism is the result of 
a lot of Anabaptistic thinking that has been percolating through our society since uh, the founding of the United States. In the Bible, <coughs> everything is associational. Right? You, you have associate, uh, associations. Uh, the church, the, the civil society to which you belong. And you bear relations. Sometimes superior, sometimes inferior, sometimes equal. And your relations determine your privileges and your duties. <coughs> Fact is, everyone in the society has an obligation to be careful to defend the rights and privileges of lawful governors. Now again, we'll come back to that idea of what exactly we're talking about. You know, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is actually a Lord. <coughs> uh, to uh, misapply a, a, a scripture, but uh, to to get you get the idea here. Right? There are a lot of people who are going to tell us that they're lords or masters, uh, but they're not. You know, their assertion is not, and this is something which has been at the center of the Reformed Presbyterian um, position for centuries that they have to exhibit uh, due measure of, of those things which God says are requisite in a magistrate. And that requirement is further <coughs> restricted <coughs> by the fact that this nation, like all of the Anglosphere, has been... Um, blessed with and made audience to the preaching of the gospel. And so this has an, this has a, an impact and it creates an obligation. Right? It's one thing never to have heard, it's another thing to have heard and to just sort of blown off the truth. And you don't have a right to do that. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> um, let me just say that the unlawful behaviors of people who claim to be magistrates uh, do not give right to Christians to break the law of God. You know, they may not be able to bind us with certain laws which are unjust, unrighteous, ungodly. Uh, we certainly should not bow to their demands that we recognize you know that uh, two men could marry for example <clears throat> anyway there there are things here that we could we could talk about more but I, I want to move on to the next question um, because some of these things are going to come out in, in some of these subsequent questions in a little bit more detail so question three Ought we to seek the liberties of those nations joined in covenant? The answer is yes. Good Isaiah 19, 21 to 25. 
Isaiah 19, verses 21 to 25. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, he shall smite and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the, Assyri and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve, shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. And the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So, <clears throat> when you have, as you did at this time, England, Scotland, Ireland, three Christian nations, joining together in covenant, <clears throat> taking in uh, really the interests of everything that pertained at that time uh, to the British Empire, which is why in our Director of Public Worship uh, they refer to the, beside England, Scotland, and Ireland, they refer to the, um, the plantations so far off. And by that they meant, uh, among other things, they meant America, North America. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> these nations, being Christian nations, under the bond of one covenant, that is having expressed and, and, and agreed to one uh, religious purpose together, it turns out what they're asserting here is this. Remember, the very first murder in the Bible uh, was met when, when God says, you know, where, uh, says to Cain, where is thy brother Abel? <clears throat> what does Cain say? How should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? That's right. always been, and you've heard me say this, and I'll say it again, that's always been the attitude of the murderer. Right. The fact is this, Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Right? And especially those who belong to the household of God. And now when you have nations which are Christian under the bond of the same covenant, uh, you have an obligation. You know, England has an obligation to Scotland, and Scotland has an obligation to, to England, and, and both to Ireland, and Ireland to both, and so on. They had an obligation here. The American Revolution was, in fact, in that respect, a violation of this principle. Right? Everything that led to that was a violation of this principle. And, and to the extent that the, the revolutionaries were, were correct, uh, that they were right at, at, an, at a level of uh, natural human rights, right, the, it should have what transpired should have happened without all the bloodshed. <clears throat> okay, the fact that we had that war already it, it, it shows you that there was a problem going on in the way that the English-speaking people were thinking a hundred plus years after this covenant is taken. But at this time, they're not thinking that way. They're thinking, I am my brother's keeper, I have an obligation, 
I need to keep it together. Uh, I need to, to help my neighbor, who my neighbor country, nation. Right? Nations are not bound together by the ties that unite the church. Look at 2 Kings 17.21, for example. 2 Kings 17, verse 29. <clears throat> Howbeit every nation made gods of their own, and put them in the houses of the high places, which the Samaritans had made every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. Yeah, it turns out that nations in, in their fallen state tend to each come up with their own god or gods. Um, the church is not that way, right? The church, wherever it is, is bound to the same faith. A national oneness is neither promised nor enjoined. Look at Job 12, 23. Job 12, verse 23. He increaseth the nations and destroyeth them. He enlargeth the nations and strengtheneth them again. Yeah, God, God sets up the nations and overturns the nations and he makes them bigger, he makes them smaller. Job tells us God does all of this in his sovereignty. Not the same with the church, right? The church uh, was established to remain forever in the earth. And the church, ultimately, um, if we really understand it, the church really is one. Uh, that's not necessarily promised to nations. But God has not given to them as he has to the church one unalterable form of government. First uh, Peter 2.13 1 Peter 2 verse 13 <clears throat> Submit yourself, yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme. Yeah, the, the fact is that the Bible uh, sets forth the form of, of government for the church is presbyterial. It's a representative republic. The church now, some people have concluded from that that that's the best form of government for a nation. In fact, government of the United States is modeled after the um, form of presbyterian government. But the fact is that the general, First General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA was meeting uh, right down the street from the Continental Congress in Philadelphia in 1788. Uh, in, in 89 uh, in, that, in that era <coughs> and um, James Madison had been raised Presbyterian and they took a lot of these ideas that were derived from the form of Presbyterian government that was adopted here at Westminster at the time of the Psalm League and Covenant and they applied them to the civil organization of the United States. Uh, that's why there is a Republican form of government in the United States. It, it, it is in some respects dependent upon this. It was actually, they actually took documents from the Presbyterian Assembly and reworked them. Um, John Thorburn who wrote Vindicae Magistratus, which is one of the defenses of our Act, Declaration, and Testimony uh, on the doctrine of the civil magistrate. Uh, Thorburn believed that a representative republic was the best form of civil government. Samuel Rutherford, on the other hand, believed that a monarchy was the best form of government. 
Uh, and I, for one, am not prepared to tell Samuel Rutherford he was wrong. I, I think that um, I tend to agree with, with Thorburn. Uh, but um, the point here is this. Whereas we're dogmatic about the form of, of church government, the church has never been dogmatic about the civil government. Right? There, are, there are upsides and downsides to every kind of civil government among men. <clears throat> so it, that's why it's called an ordinance of man here. It, it has to do with the form. Uh, and Peter, Peter is making clear that while the, the, the governance, the idea of government itself is of God, the form of that government uh, is, is something which has been put in the hands of man. Again, not so when we're talking about church government. Their rise and their fall as nations are settled the purpose and effected in the providence of God. Look at Psalm 75, 7. Psalm 75, or 7. But God is the judge. He put it down one and set it up another. And then when in the administrations of providence, the way is open for any portion of the human family to promote the legitimate ends of civil government, their own good, the interests of the church, and the glory of God, they should embrace the opportunity and unite themselves in civil compact. So look at Ecclesiastes 8.2 and 1 Chronicles 16.31. Ecclesiastes 8.2 I counted thee to keep the king's commandment and that in regard of the oath of God. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 31. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let men say among the nations, The Lord reigneth. And those thus joined ought to seek that which will yield the truest Christian liberty throughout the kingdoms. Jeremiah 50, verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah 50, <coughs> verses 4 and 5. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. So this idea that nations joined in covenant should seek the liberties of other nations uh, is, is in fact, uh, I think, a good and laudable uh, thing that's being taught here in the covenant. <coughs> that, that it is, in fact, um, a worthwhile endeavor. And... Uh, Anything that one nation can do to encourage another nation to serve God, to, to submit to the reign of Christ as mediator, to maintain the law of God, uh, to help in all of that, uh, encourage and help in, in the national capacity, that is all to the good. Right, it's all part of, of what we, I think, uh, should expect from nations. You know, right now when Western nations um, interact with other nations, they tend to do so largely with an eye to commerce. Um, and almost entirely without regard to religion. The Psalm League has that 
really reversed, right? The, the biggest concern is religion. We're not gonna we're not gonna argue with you if you have a monarchy versus an oligarchy versus a republic versus a democracy. Um, however, <clears throat> each form of government <clears throat> is going to uh, provide different challenges, and and to some extent, as they found in forming the um, government of the United States, uh, they they actually took into account something that the Presbyterians took into account when they met in Philadelphia at that first General Assembly, and that was um, the idea that in time the nation of the United States would spread from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. The Presbyterians at the First General Assembly were already considering how to organize and, and uh, because Presbyterianism is associational church government, um, they, they're, they're concerned to make sure that the church is prepared for transitioning with this ever-increasing geographic area. And the same was done. Uh, there were provisions made uh, with respect to civil government as well. Uh, so, you know, in a smaller place like Geneva, uh, having a, a, a little republic or even a little democracy might not be uh, as difficult a thing to achieve, right? So there, there are different reasons for the things that are done. Some of them have to do with the size of the nation, the coherence of the nation, and so on. Anyway, let's move on to the fourth question. Uh, should we not endeavor to preserve and defend the person and authority of the Supreme Magistrate in the preservation of and defense of the true religion? The answer is yes. Isaiah 60, verses 3 and 10. Isaiah 60, verses 3 and 10, verse 3. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. And verse 10. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. So it's one of the prophecies regarding the New Testament era is when the Gentiles come in, uh, they're going to do just that, what we see going on here. They're going to endeavor to preserve and defend the person and authority of the Supreme Magistrate in the preservation and defense of the true religion. Now, let me just point out here, again, before we move on, the emphasis here is not simply preserving and defending the person and authority of the king. It's preserving and defending the person and authority of the king as the king <clears throat> endeavors a preservation and defense of the true religion. In other words, they're recognizing their obligation is limited to, bounded by, and in fact uh, extends as far as the preservation and defense of true religion. This is not a blanket endorsement of anybody who claims to be the king. <clears throat> the reason why the Presbyterians um, have been at the forefront of 
of um, resisting tyranny. And it's the reason why the Presbyterians were at the forefront of the American Revolution, because there was, uh, I think, real tyranny going on at the time. And, and to the extent that that was going on, there was a just cause and reason for revolution. You know, it made, um, made one of the, the more famous members of the English Parliament <clears throat> remark that uh, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. They were talking about John Witherspoon, who's the only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence. He was a Presbyterian minister. Um, whereas the Anglican ministers, the Episcopalians, uh, week after week, they were being told to obey the king no matter what. <coughs> the Presbyterian ministers were out there, uh, and there, there were a large number of, of Presbyterian and Reformed people in America at that time. Um, I think somewhere in the, the realm of... of uh, 70 or 80 percent of the people in the colonies. It was, it was a very high number. But they were hearing week after week why they did not owe, they did not owe any kind of obedience to a magistrate that was in fact exercising unjust powers. <clears throat> that idea is in keeping with the, the Psalm League and Covenant. People who want to say that, according to the Psalm League and Covenant, uh, that, the, for example, the American Revolution was inherently wrong? Uh, they're wrong. Um, I, I, if again, if if the British people, the English-speaking people, had maintained the stance of the Covenant, the occasion of the American Revolution would not have arisen. <coughs> um, the problem isn't that the Americans rebelled, the problem is that having, uh, in fact, resisted that tyranny, they did not, in the wake of that, uh, instate, reinstate all of the principles of the Solemn League in America. Anyway, Paul commands us to pray for the conversion of the civil rulers, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 2. Verses 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Uh, Job declares that idolatry is punishable by the judicial tribunals, thereby insinuates civil rulers ought to have a care about the true religion. Look at Job 31, 26 28. Job 31, verses 26 through 28. If I beheld the sun when it, when it shined, or the moon walking in brightness, and my heart hath been secretly enticed, or my mouth hath kissed my hand, this also were iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. Yeah, and, and what that tells us is Job, uh, who is not within the family of Abraham as best we can tell um, Job is expressing a sentiment I think that everyone uh, knows by nature right? natural light, natural revelation <coughs> does teach that the supreme magistrate ought to have some regard to maintaining or taking care of uh, about matters concerning true religion 
Um, and, of course, when you had the revelation of the Bible, uh, you don't have any questions then about what that true religion is. You're not uh, sort of groping in the dark to figure that out. So, the fact that they're called to do this, and everyone, I think, by nature knows that the magistrate has some obligation in this regard. You may not know how far or exactly what it entails, but they have some sense of it. Is exactly why everyone has this idea, uh, when I say everyone, obviously it's not every single person. Some people are, are, are um, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But the vast majority of people, if you were to ask them, does the, the civil government have some obligation to see that there is a public morality upheld? They would say yes. It may differ what, as to what that entails. Uh, but that, if you press that a little further, uh, then you have, to ask, you have to ask them, well, how do you derive your morality, right? From what? From what do you get uh, your your um, uh, principles of morality? And that is where the argument will begin. Uh, but anyway, Job is saying that he knows, and and this tells us the Gentiles, uh, as Paul says in, in Romans two, the Gentiles knew. Uh, without the law. They knew the work of the law. They knew what was required. So it should be no surprise then that Paul is commanding us to pray for the conversion of civil rulers or that these uh, covenanters in 1643 are in fact concerned to defend the person and authority of the king in the preservation and defense of true religion. Uh, note, too, that Isaiah teaches the duty of the civil governments to acknowledge and support the Christian religion. Look at Isaiah 49, 22, and 23. Isaiah 49, verses 22 and 23. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standards to the people. And they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lift up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, but they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Yeah, so there's an idea, and there are a couple of ideas here uh, in, in Isaiah. One is this, that kings and queens have an obligation to establish and preserve and maintain the true religion in their nations. And this is prophesied to take place sometime during the New Testament era. Uh, just as we're taught to pray for the conversion of civil authorities to Christianity, so too ought we to endeavor to preserve and defend them once converted. So look at Isaiah 60, verse 11, uh, Proverbs 25, 5, and Acts 9, 15. Isaiah 60, verse 11. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. 
Proverbs 25, verse 5, Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Acts 9, 15, As the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So again, we should be concerned that the civil authorities are actually converted. We don't, again, we don't want, um, and we're not advocates of Christians ruling in governments. We want Christian governments. We want the, we want the nations converted. We don't just want a few converts ruling, or even a lot of converts ruling. Although we want that too, but. You know, ruling over a body of uh, of law that is supposedly neutral is is not a, an acceptable position. All right? Question five: Should we not endeavor to preserve and defend the person and authority of the supreme magistrate or the king in the preservation and defense of the liberties of the nation? And again, the answer is yes. In Romans thirteen seven. Romans thirteen verse seven. <clears throat> Render therefore to all their dues tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We ought to support their just administrations with our blood and treasure. Matthew eight nine and ten, and Luke twenty twenty five. Matthew eight verses nine and ten. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Luke 20, verse 25, And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. Yeah, we, there's an obligation that falls to believers to uh, to endeavor to preserve and defend again the person authority of the supreme magistrate in preserving and defending true liberties of the nation right? we, we, we're not we're not in a position to defend giving the rights of God to men right that's true religion and when they violate that we we have to resist that we have to decline their authority in that and sometimes the church members of the church have been called to suffer and in, in uh, Scotland it was called the killing times 1660s to 80s uh, they were a lot of Scottish Presbyterians were killed because they wouldn't allow the rights of God to be given to men on the other hand and this really takes us closer to that point uh, before about the American Revolution, uh, there was a concern that uh, the rights of man were being trampled right, by um, by these absolute uh, exercises on the part of, of the king. And um, that too is not what we're we didn't sign up for that in the Solomon Covenant. Right? We didn't sign up to defend tyranny. We didn't sign up to defend the right of uh, tyrants to usurp powers over men that would, in fact, restrict or or deny their 
true liberties before God. But as long as they're defending true liberty, um, and we're, we're dealing with a, a lawful supreme magistrate, then we have an obligation to support that with both blood and treasure. We're not, we're not denying that, um, that it, it falls from time to time for Christians to, to um, engage in uh, what we would call just war. Right? Or the lawful taking of life in cases where people have committed capital crimes. You know, sometimes it becomes necessary uh, in the course of human events to lay down our lives for that which is right not only with regard to the rights of God, but with regard to the rights of man. And, you know, we should be pledging what we have to that. And again, in the American Revolution, uh, there was a lot of talk like this. <clears throat> the problem is not that the cause was uh, inherently wrong. The problem was that the end that the people, a lot of the people who uh, undertook uh, was, let's just say, less than noble. And it, was bad, it was bad enough that uh, Patrick Henry, when he was attending the Constitutional Convention, walked out and he said, I smell a rat. Patrick Henry was, was a Calvinist. He was, a, he was um, a, a believer. Uh, and he was not happy with what they were doing in the Continental uh, Congress or Convention, uh, the Constitutional Convention. Um, but, you know, the Anti-Federalists uh, lost that one. Anyway, if a magistrate may lawfully go to war in defense of the just rights and privileges of the Commonwealth, and they may, look at Joshua 11.18. Joshua 11, verse 18. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Yeah, whatever justifies him so to do, lays his subjects under an obligation to support him in every just and necessary measure with their estates and lives. So look at Revelation 17, 14, and 16. Revelation 16. The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat the flesh and burn her with fire. Yeah, so, um, you know, Presbyterians have not been pacifistic. Uh, we're not pacifists by, uh, by conviction at all. Uh, however, we are also not warmongers. We're not out there beating the drum for endless war, for endless commerce, for endless empire. Um, but there are times, we understand, when a lawful magistrate lawfully goes to war in defense of just rights and privileges of the commonwealth. And in those cases, whatever justifies that is sufficient reason to lay an obligation upon 
all who would uh, be conscientiously obedient to this lawful and just Supreme Magistrate uh, to support that magistrate with blood and treasure, right? So um, this is important because the Anabaptists, the Anabaptists deny that there is um, ever a time to go to war. Right? They are pacifists. They simply think that there is never a proper time, a proper place for such action. Uh, the Quakers were, uh, they're, they're a species of Anabaptist. Right? They're, I mean, our Reformation forefathers viewed them as quite fanatical. Uh, but, you know, William Penn, when he came to Pennsylvania, Penn's Woods, he, he um, had a problem. He had a lot of papists in the south in Maryland and out west around Pittsburgh. He had a lot of engines. Those engines, he was concerned, were going to come in and scalp everybody, make war on them. So the Quakers did something very smart. Um, they gave all of the land, all kinds of land in the south, along the Maryland border, and in the west in Pennsylvania, to the Presbyterians. Because they knew the Presbyterians would fight back. But they also knew the Presbyterians wouldn't bother the Quakers, so the Quakers didn't bother them. And so, uh, to this day, if you go along the southern border of Pennsylvania and, and the western border, you find a lot of old Presbyterian churches, very old communions of Presbyterians, uh, because this was the arrangement. So Presbyterians have never been uh, big fans of, of mindless pacifism. Um, again, Covenanters, on the other hand, uh, want to step it up a little bit more and make clear that you know we're not going to go to war. Uh, we're not going to join hands with people to go to war uh, under an illegitimate magistrate or for an illegitimate end. And so it's not it, it's not enough for some uh, king to tell us it's time to go to war. It better be a just war. We we agree with just war theory, uh, but we are not particularly militarists or or in favor of just going over and conquering people, killing them, and taking their stuff. Our support is based in this. This idea to repel force by force is an early dictate of the law of self-preservation. We'll look at Exodus 21, 23 to 25, and Numbers 10, 9. Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, strike for strike. <coughs> Numbers 10, verse 9. And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then you shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and you shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. So, you know, there's been a lot of um, a lot made about this eye for an eye and tooth for tooth idea. Uh, it's gotten a lot of discussion uh, in, in, I don't know, the last... Oh, 75 years or so, uh, in large part thanks to Gandhi, 
in his pacifism, you know, where he said in a, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth leaves us with a society without any eyes or any teeth. Uh, the fact is that when, when Israel is given this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's establishing the principle of just, the justness of repelling force with equal force. Before this, um, and, and, and outside of Christian culture, where, where these kinds of principles have taken effect, <clears throat> uh, in, in, you know, in Islamic societies <clears throat> or in pagan societies, very often the punishment is much more severe, uh, draconian. It's much more severe than the, than the crime. You know, in, in uh, some of these Islamic countries, if you steal a pack of gum, they'll cut your hand off. And while, you know, I'm sympathetic to punishing thieves, uh, the law of Moses here, given by God, is telling us that we need to pursue justice and that we ought not to go overboard in that. And so there, there's this idea of proportionality. And from this, we come up with or derive the idea of, of just war theory. Right? We're not going to be the aggressors. We shouldn't be the aggressors. We shouldn't uh, repel aggression with any more force than is necessary to repel it. You know, this is, but this is a principle. We're not pacifists. We're not like the, the Quaker who caught the fellow in his home, pointed the shotgun and, and said, I don't mean to harm thee, but I'm about to pull the trigger in the direction where, that, where thou art standing. Um, good Presbyterian would have no problem shooting an intruder. Uh, that's, there is an implied aggression when somebody comes in your house at night in the dark and they're you know, endangering you and your family. <coughs> we don't really need to feel the need to give them a whole lot of warning in that regard, you know, when you cross certain lines. But again, this is according to the law of Moses. If someone comes in your house at night and you kill them, uh, you are not guilty of criminal homicide. Now, to this, to this idea of self-preservation, we're also bound by the social compact in which mutual protection is solemnly stipulated. So look, for example, Joshua 22.12. Joshua 22.12. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. Um, there is a civil compact, a social compact. Now, at this time, and we're not really getting into this here now um, as to why we're political dissenters, but in 1643, the Civil Compact is uh, reformed and reforming. Right? It's moving in, in the right direction, and um, so they're, they're willing to make pledges. Uh, what's, what's under uh, the uh, changes in society uh, 
generally things have been going in a, in a lawful direction um, and even perhaps in a reforming direction here. The danger of losing the invaluable privileges of religion and liberty may lawfully summon us to arms. So look, for example, 1 Samuel 19.8. 1 Samuel 19, verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter, and they fled from him. Yeah, I mean, if the Philistines take over, what happens? Well, you know, the, Israel knew all too well. Uh, true religion would be suppressed. Uh, their, their liberties, natural liberties, would be curtailed or entirely uh, suppressed. And so that can be, the threat of that can be enough to summon us to arms. Right? We see aggressive behavior uh, that puts us in danger of losing those privileges. <clears throat> then, you know, we're going to have to respond. In these cases, and the civil magistrate is the public organ of the nation's will and is entitled to obedience. So look at 1 Kings 22.45. 1 Kings 22, <coughs> verse 45. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Yeah, it's part of <coughs> the um, duty of the civil magistrate to wage war on just occasion. Right? To use just uh, just that is proportional force to repel uh, intended violence. <coughs> Again, this is not um, an endorsement of every war that every magistrate uh, could conceivably enter into. <coughs> After all, in any war uh, at least one side is at fault. Sometimes both sides are at fault, but at least one side is at fault. And if you're on that side, you shouldn't be participating. And it's simply a just application then of that principle of rendering due honor to the Supreme Magistrate in his just and lawful exercise of power for the benefit of the Commonwealth. Again, First Peter 2, 17. First Peter 2, verse 17. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. <clears throat> so do honor. Uh, do honor in the case, in, in this case of preservation, defense, and liberties of the nation uh, extends from the smallest aspect of maintaining justice in the society right up to the greatest, uh, the greatest action the civil magistrate ever undertakes, which is maintaining justice against the unjust uh, imposition of violence by some aggressive power. <clears throat> in, that, in, in the case of war, a national power. All right, let's move on to question uh, six. <coughs> Question six, is it a proper end, aimed at herein, that the world and our consciences may bear witness to our loyalty? Again, yes, First Peter 2, 13 and 15. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, uh, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the King as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put the silence of ignorance of foolish men. It's our duty to silence the, the caviling and the railing of wicked men who seek to undermine the covenanted work of reformation by casting aspersions upon the character of those engaged in it. Second Peter 2.10 2 Peter 2 verse 10 But chiefly then that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government presumptuous are they self-willed they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. So it's the character of true covenanted uniformity to manifest righteousness, judgment, and faithfulness, or loyalty. Hosea 2, 19 and 20. Hosea 2, verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth thee unto me forever, yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Yeah, so the issue here is we want the world and our consciences to bear witness to our loyalty. And if you uh, do a word search in the King James, you, you're not really going to find the word loyal. <clears throat> but the word, uh, the word that is that means loyalty in Greek and in Hebrew is the word for faithfulness. Right? Faithfulness is loyalty. So people say, well, you know, they, they may think the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about loyalty. Actually, it has a lot to say about loyalty. Right? It, it, everywhere unfaithfulness is condemned. That's the same as saying disloyalty is condemned. Now, it could be misplaced. You could be faithful about the wrong things. But loyalty, faithfulness is important, and it's the character of true covenanted uniformity. When God betroths them, when he covenants, brings them into the bond of the covenant, <clears throat> he's going to <coughs> manifest righteousness, judgment, and loyalty, faithfulness. Right, they're going to be righteous. They're going to be concerned about justice. And they're going to be con concerned about loyalty. <coughs> So when, again, when these people are saying we're concerned <coughs> that the world and our consciences may bear witness to our loyalty, this is a very, uh, a very important biblical concern. Like disloyalty, again, is like saying you're unfaithful. And we still use this kind of language in, in the electoral college, a person who's been pledged to vote for someone if they if they um, vote for someone other than the person they've been pledged to vote for in the Electoral College, they're called a faithless elector. That is, they're disloyal. Right? It's, it's actually viewed by most people, um, and rightly so, as a problem. Disloyalty, unfaithfulness, God views as a huge problem. When you're unfaithful, uh, you're in great spiritual danger. And so they see this project 
of covenanted uniformity as creating a, a church and, an, and nations in which and toward which <clears throat> they can express loyalty um, without any harm to their consciences, right? They're not in any way, and we're going to come back to this in the last question, but uh, they're not in any way diminishing the just claims of their consciences, right? They're not trying to dismiss what conscience is commanding and commending in them. To, to be loyal to something contrary to the word of God, to be loyal to tyranny in church or in state or both, that would be disloyalty or unfaithfulness to God. But when your project is to make the church and the nations faithful to God, loyal to God, uh, you, can, you can have a loyalty toward them and that loyalty is not going to be at odds with your conscience bearing, bearing witness to that as well. So thus, when God brings again favor to Zion, look at Psalm uh, 102, 13. Psalm 102, verse 13. Now shall arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. And the true church is established then by law. Isaiah 2, 2-4. Isaiah 2, 2-4. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. <coughs> Many people shall go and say, Come ye in, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and he will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into the plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So when this happens, then we know that civil society shall be called both righteous and faithful or loyal. Good Isaiah 1.26. Isaiah 1.26. And I will restore thy judges as at the first and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Yeah, the faithful or the loyal city. <coughs> so, what's going on here? Well, from Isaiah and, and the Psalms, uh, we have reason to believe that what's being prophesied has to do with, particularly that time during the New Testament era, that we would call the millennium when all nations will be brought into uh, this relation and that the kingdom of God will be established uh, in, in the kingdoms of all of the nations. And the church will be established and the true religion will flourish and civil society will mirror that. Um, that's when that, that happens when God brings, again, the favor to Zion. And the, the mountain of the Lord's house is established in the tops of the mountains of the earth. Right? Then, then we'll see what it means to be a righteous and loyal to God society. Not only in one nation like Israel was when they were faithful, but in all of the nations of the earth. Now they're going to be brought to this. Now, <clears throat> I say that's, that's something 
that we're, we're not really going to see until the millennium. But uh, the fact is that we are to endeavor, uh, strive toward that. We don't know exactly when all of that starts. And so, you know, in 1643, they're not, they're not aiming for the lowest rung of the ladder. <clears throat> they're aiming for the top. They're hoping for the best. If you read uh, George Gillespie's sermon <coughs> before um, uh, one of the Houses of Parliament, I, I forget whether it's Commons or Lords, but there's a sermon on Ezekiel. And in that sermon, he speculates that perhaps the great apostasy is now over and maybe they're heading for that, that um, glad time, Zion's glad morning, uh, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord this Christ. And this solemn league and covenant is all part of that hope. Um, we don't think that it you know, obviously at this point we can look back and say it didn't happen then. Um, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't have tried and that doesn't mean that what they did is not in some way instructive and, and helpful to direct us uh, so that we can keep directing people. This is the way things have to go. Uh, at some point, you know, they'll actually start taking counsel from the church. This is how it has to go. <coughs> so, they understand the propositions, and we're, you know, we're we're concerned with what we're told to do, what we're being told to do. We're not to the timing of all of this is not in our hands. Right? God may or may not bless the timing, but we have an obligation to be faithful in our time and place. And we'll talk about this more when we get into covenant renewal. But their their uh, theological impulse here. Is right. You know, their their certainly their spiritual desires are correct and laudatory. Um, we should be looking for that Zion's glad morning. Uh, we should be hopeful that that day would be soon coming. And they they thought that perhaps they were at the the very beginning of that. Um. <clears throat> they, they thought that there should be there should be a time of revival and refreshing and they, they a lot of them thought that they were actually there at the, uh, the cusp of that and again not without reason if you if you were there in 1643 and you saw the direction things were going uh, it, it very well could have looked that way. Just like there are things today that, you know, sort of look like uh, certain aspects of uh, prophecy may be unfolding in, in our time. Um, we may look back at some point and say, well, that wasn't quite it. Uh, and so in, in the interim, you know, what to do until the millennium uh, well, what to do is we need to remain faithful. We, we have to remain uh, witnesses bearing testimony to this precise uh, sort of thinking that we find embodied in the Psalm League and Covenant. All right, let's move on to question seven. 
<coughs> is it also proper proper and named that herein that the world our consciences may bear witness that we have no intentions to diminish the supreme magistrate's just power and greatness the answer is yes Romans 13 5 Romans 13, verse 5, Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. <coughs> now let me just say, when the when Paul says we're to be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake, we can't be subject for conscience sake to something contrary to the commandment of God. Right. Anything contrary to the command of God is not going to be able to bind us conscientiously. <clears throat> you could, you could certainly <clears throat> be um, subject for wrath's sake. You know, if I don't do this, they're going to beat me. They're going to hurt me. They're going to shoot me. They're going to kill me. Uh, they're going to do something horrible to me. Uh, that's for wrath's sake. The conscience' sake requires there to be a conformity to the law and precept of God. So you can't, you can't have that uh, w without having that conformity. So again, <clears throat> when the covenant talks this way, this is not a, a recipe for boundless obedience to a magistrate regardless of what the magistrate is doing. The duties of the people towards their rulers regarding their, their just power and greatness are as follows. Number one, uh, to yield subjection and obedience to them with reverence and fear. Get Romans 13, 1 and 4. Romans 13, verses 1 and 4, verse 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. In verse 4, For he is the minister of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Yeah. So again, uh, if, we, if we're dealing with a just and lawful magistrate in exercise of just and lawful power, then we're to yield subjection and obedience to them with reverence and fear. That's not to say that we have the same obligation to those who are illegitimate, immorally constituted, unlawful magistrates, or that even in a lawful magistrate that we are to yield ourselves obedient to unlawful or unjust commands. I mean, it, it, uh, it took people in the West, um, uh, I think, to canonize that in, in international law. It took the, um, the Nuremberg trials during World War II right, to, to make clear that um, you are not just to obey orders. Right? It was not an excuse. If the order is inherently immoral, unjust, tyrannical, and you obey it, you become responsible with the person giving the order. And, uh, you know, at that point, the world community decided they would move in. Covenanters have been saying that for centuries, that that should be the case. 
right? You shouldn't obey. Uh, you know, if, if they tell if they tell the police that they should uh, enforce some law that's unjust, you know, arrest someone uh, for protesting, uh, you know, abortion, for example, um, the the police officer should just tell them absolutely not. They're not doing anything unlawful. In fact, what they should do is go in and arrest the people who are murdering babies. Right? There's another law they shouldn't obey. They should just go in and arrest them for homicide. And if they get fired, well, then, you know, they get fired. But if, if we had people doing these sorts of things, uh, a lot of the nonsense, a lot of the, uh, of the, the evil that's being practiced under color of law, uh, that would have gone away a long time ago. <coughs> you know, there were a lot of arguments made uh, to similar effect uh, when uh, we had slavery in this country. There were a lot of people were saying, well, you know, that you have to obey the law. And the, and, and the, the Covenanters said, uh, we're not going to obey those laws. Right? We're going to help people break those laws because uh, those laws are laws of men and they're ungodly. You know, we're not going to uphold or support that sort of thing. There was a huge controversy uh, in the, um, the Presbyterian Church at that time. Uh, there was uh, something called the Gardner Spring uh, uh, Resolutions that uh, went through the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the North, and they were supported by no less a person than Charles Hodge at Princeton, uh, where they wanted to take the position that some of the Southern Presbyterian theologians took with regard to this issue, which is the church is completely spiritual and, and out of the loop. Um, <clears throat> the Reformed Presbyterian Church never took that position with regard to that issue, but from its earliest days, uh, it excluded slaveholders from being communicant members. Right? Because it, it is there is an, an injustice when you have a, a type of slavery being enforced purely along racial lines. There's no, uh, you know, they're, they're, these are not people who are being impressed into slavery uh, because they, they become insolvent or through war or some other means. These are people who are being kept in this, this uh, situation simply as a, a matter of um, racial uh, discrimination that is without any foundation in justice. And these, these are people who have done nothing to warrant essentially being put into uh, a prison or a labor camp. Right? So we're not to obey those kinds of laws. So don't understand when we, when we talk about just laws here. We're, we're not, you know, we're just powers. Uh, this is not a blanket endorsement of anything. Someone who happens to wear the, the hat of a governor or president or whoever wants to do that. It's this is not a carte blanche to do evil. Or two, <clears throat> to pay them tribute. Look at Romans thirteen six and seven. Romans thirteen verses six and seven. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, 
tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So again, uh, paying tribute, well, um, when we, we talk about that, to whom is it due? Is it due to uh, all who claim it? No. It's due to those legitimate constitutions in the exercise of just rights and powers. It's not due uh, beyond that. It's not due... Um, and, and so there's no, contrary to what some people uh, would, would uh, advocate, there's no moral obligation to pay an immoral government uh, to give them anything beyond what they're already going to take and so on. It, it, it simply isn't there. On the other hand, when we have a just power <clears throat> a legitimate lawful magistrate, uh, then we do an obligation. It's their due. It's in our, our duty. All right, third, to pray and give thanks for them. First uh, Timothy 2, 1 and 2 again. First Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Yeah, so... <clears throat> Uh, James Douglas deals with this at the end of his um, little booklet on strictures on occasional hearing. He has a section on praying for kings and, and how we are to understand uh, this, this precise thing. And, and uh, by the way, Stephen Marshall did something on this um, in, during the Westminster the period of Westminster Assembly. Uh, it gets to a very similar point. We're not praying for them to prosper in tyranny or in injustice or in the execution of evil or anything like that. We're certainly not going to give thanks for them uh, when they're wicked uh, tyrants. Right? Uh, So, uh, again, this is restricted to, and when we, we consider the language, it's restricted to people who are there justly, they're there legitimately, they're it's a lawful exercise of power. It's a moral constitution of government, and so on. Without all of that, uh, this is not really to the point. We, uh, for those who are ungodly, for tyrants and things, we pray that they would be converted. We pray they would be restrained. But we're certainly not giving thanks uh, for that any more than, although you know, all chastisements come in the um, in the providence of God. Uh, we're not giving thanks for them as as something uh, that we would view as as more than a chastisement. I mean, we can thank God for chastisements, but we're probably uh, not quite as cheerful about that as as something uh, that is actually um, a little bit more productive and positive. All right, fourth, not to curse or vile or speak evil of the ruler. In Exodus 22, 28, Ecclesiastes 10, 20. Exodus 22, <coughs> verse 28. And thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the rulers of thy people. Uh, Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20. Curse not the king, no, not in thy thoughts, and curse not the rich in thy, chamber, the, in thy bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. 
And again, um, when you have a just and lawful authority, <coughs> a supreme magistrate, uh, we, we need to be very careful how we speak it. Uh, with respect to them in that exercise. All right, uh, the other side, the flip side, I'm going to address in a, in a moment. But uh, five, not to be stubborn, disobedient, or presumptuous towards them. Deuteronomy 17, 11 to 13, and Ezra 7, 26. Deuteronomy 17, verses 11 to 13. According to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt, thou shalt do, thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee, to the right hand nor to the left. And the man that will do presumptuously, and will not hearken unto the priest, unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the, the Lord thy God, or unto the judge, even that man shall die, and thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and do and do no more presumptuously. Ezra 7, verse 26, And whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. Again, we're talking about just, lawful, supreme magistrates, right? And then 6, not seditious or rebellious against him, Romans 13, 2. And then 13.2, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So, rebellion against a just, lawful magistrate, that is um, a resisting the ordinance of God. On the other hand, rebellion against a tyrant... Uh, as Jefferson said, uh, I think rightly so, and it's actually something that he may well have picked up from some of the French Huguenots, but the idea is that uh, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And Rutherford says something very much to that effect as well in Lex Rex in 1644, uh, not long after this covenant. So, uh, this is not a prescription for blanket obedience, no matter what these people are doing or saying or behaving. Uh, you don't have to sit there while they enact every kind of moral perversion uh, or enact every kind of, of injustice or, or um, wage you know, unlawful, ungodly wars against other nations and so on, and act as if that uh, this, we just have to, uh, be good citizens and sit down and shut up and and uh, remain silent. Uh, that's not what we're saying here. We're, we are pledged to support what is lawful, good, holy, and just. And when the magistrate is constituted morally, when the exercise of power is lawful and just, uh, we have to lend not just a passive support, but an active support. That's the point here. <clears throat> so, they ought not to withhold loyalty or faithfulness from the lawful supreme magistrate in the preservation and defense of true religion and just liberties of the nation. Again, Exodus 22, 28. Exodus 22, verse 28. Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. And yet, 
they mustn't yield a subjection to unlawful and usurped powers that are exercised under the pretense of magistratical power, whether exercised by a legitimate or illegitimate magistrate. So look at Acts 23, 3 to 5. Acts 23, verse <coughs> 3 through 5, Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then Paul said, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Yeah, so there, there are two ways that people have taken this. They've said, you know, Paul was genuinely confused. He didn't know he was the high priest. Of course, you have to wonder why he's mouthing off then at, at all in the priest, the high priest hall. Um, or I think you can understand it much more naturally. That what Paul is saying is, look, if you were the high priest, you wouldn't have come, you would not have commanded. No high priest, as high priest, has authority to command me to be smitten contrary to the law of God. And when you command me to be smitten contrary to the law of God. You cease to be a high priest, and I will tell you, you're in the wrong. That you are ungodly, what you're telling, what you're doing is wrong, and I'm not going to recognize you as a high priest in that, that kind of capacity. <clears throat> and I think that's more uh, in keeping with the spirit of what's going on here. You know, Paul could hardly mistake, remember he's a Pharisee, he could hardly mistake where he was or what was going on. The guy at the end of the hall in the throne of the high priest is clearly the high priest. And only a complete moron would have missed that point. You know, people who think that Paul was confused, they, I think they need to be honest and say what they're really saying is Paul was a complete moron. Um, but Paul was not. You know, Paul, what Paul was not is he was not an advocate of passive obedience to tyrants or to the exercise of tyrannical power. So while it's important <clears throat> that we support that power uh, conscientiously that is according to the Word of God, that is not a blanket endorsement of any or every person occupying political office and, and asserting such authority. The conscience can only bear witness to a loyalty or a faithfulness which is formed in the bond of the rule of Scripture. So look at Revelation 13, 12, 16, and 17. Revelation 13, verses 12, 16, and 17, verse 12. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. In verses 16 and 17. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So let me just say, during the time of the great apostasy, most people are going to be very, uh, well, they're going to be deceived, and they're going to be coerced into uh, yielding their consent to a lot of things that are simply ungodly. All right? And that's not the position that the Covenanters are advocating. It's not the position 
that these men were advocating here in 1643 in the Solemn League, uh, and it shouldn't be our position today. You know, whether uh, we're in the still in the great apostasy or uh, we've reached uh, the climax of it, um, that remains to be seen. But uh, we shouldn't be so quickly sucked in. On the other hand, we shouldn't be so um, so concerned that so many have been sucked in when it was prophesied that the, the multitudes would wonder after the beast, that most people would be duped during the time of the apostasy. Um, what If we're at the end of that, it, as I hope we, we're reaching the end, uh, hopefully we will begin to see people disabused of this and, and no longer taken captive uh, to these ideas. Nonetheless, conscience conscience um, can only bear witness to a loyalty that is undivided, right? It can't, you can't be loyal to God and loyal to Antichrist. And, and so, you know, this is another reason our societies have become so perverted, is that they've become, they've got these divided loyalties. You know, people in churches think they can be loyal to Jesus and loyal to uh, Jesuits. And the power of Antichrist is everywhere. Deceived, deceived and deceiving. But the powers which God has ordained in the liberty Christ has purchased are intended to uphold and preserve one another. Matthew 12, 25. Matthew 12, verse 25. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Yeah. So the point is, for these folks in Article 3, um, it was possible, and, and the way forward was possible, joining together um, both the, um, uh, the powers that God had ordained, that is being exercised in the way that God had ordained, and the liberty whereby Christ had made them free so they could yield uh, conscientious obedience. Uh, when that all falls apart, the Covenanters have to rethink and, and retool uh, how this testimony is going to look in a world that uh, they realize is still in the midst of a great apostasy. And that has fallen to us and that will uh, be something we'll be talking about off and on in the next few weeks. Next time, we're going to take up Article 4, the fourth article of the Solemn League and Covenant.